Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Episode 54 is a follow-up of episode 53, so I kindly request you to first listen to episode 53. to connect with our discussion in episode 54 thank you and enjoy this episode yeah i think this is a, a fair perspective i'd say and recently we also so i think uh, france has also opened up uh, uh, i think some operational military units or training units i would say in the indo pacific region too so it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see of course down the line how uh, european other european nations as well react to uh the situation all you know uh, would try to possibly cooperate alongside france in this region yes yeah and proceeding ahead uh, we discussed about hybrid threats uh to add a you know lens of technology i would say now uh, as we go deep into the conversation so how is nato addressing the challenges posed by emerging technologies including artificial intelligence in the context of transatlantic security Yes so um what NATO calls uh, emerging and disruptive technologies are now clearly identified as course both opportunities but also challenges and it stands quite uh, prominently in the in the latest strategic concept that I mentioned uh, earlier um yet it it is kind of a dilemma for uh, for NATO because these are mostly uh dual use uh technologies which have military applications but uh, but not only and so nato itself doesn't have uh, a regulatory power uh, these the, the the way to tackle with uh, technologies or ai for instance are mainly national prerogatives Uh, or can be carried out through the european union when it when it has a mandate on on this and so what nato can do is mostly um agreeing on overarching principles uh, that the countries can uh, take and infuse in their own national processes but it it really cannot have a, a transformative impact it's not a venue that define Uh, the national policies in these regards um so that doesn't prevent nato from adopting policies or uh, or at least strategies regarding these technologies for instance regarding artificial intelligence there is a dedicated strategy that was adopted in october uh, 2021 so basically it's about principles uh, trying to standardize processes uh, clarify what is expected from industries from institutions or for uh, end users 
Um, and these strategies, uh, by the way, set to be updated, uh, I think by next year, uh, to update it and also take into account the generative, generative artificial intelligence. But again, NATO doesn't really has the, the means to enforce, uh, to enforce policies in this regard. Interesting. And uh, we have also seen uh, like agencies like European Defense Agency, which have, you know, recently also tried to focus on the environmental aspect, uh, especially in the European security domain. Uh, so from that angle, how does climate change impact uh, transatlantic security and how is NATO addressing environmental security concerns? Yes, it is a bit of, uh, of the same of uh, a practical challenge for NATO on how to address these issues that are not military by, by nature and that are mainly dealt at the, at the national or EU level for those who are members of, of the EU. Yet, I think climate change uh, is and, and its impact on, on security is a very important uh, topic. It is mentioned in the strategic concept and as one of the defining challenge of our time. And it is also a theme that is dear to the current uh, Secretary General, uh, Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, but this is really a multifold, multi-entry topic. So you can tackle it either through the angle of uh, uh, what is the strategic impact of climate change, such as, for instance, opening of uh, new routes across the Arctic that Russia or China could, you can use later on. Or you can tackle it through the angle of uh, how do you respond to uh, uh, climatic hazards such as earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, uh, eruptions or floods, uh, that kind of, um, of hazards. You can also tackle it through the angle of what is the toll of climate change on military activities or the, the obstacles that the, the constraints uh, due to climate change. For example, if you operate in extreme weather conditions, be, be it extreme cold or extreme heat in some, in some regions. And perhaps one of the, of the other way to, to tackle, and this is probably where NATO can have a, have a role, is how do you make sure that uh, NATO militaries are exemplary in uh, when it comes to their own carbon footprint. So how do you make sure that uh, NATO militaries are energy efficient? Uh, so this is where this is one area where NATO can at least help to drive uh, to drive policies. Uh, and so NATO is actually doing taking some steps uh, in this regard in addressing environmental security. It has, for instance, established the Center of Excellence on Climate Security Issues in, uh, in Montreal, in Canada. It uh, also engages in civil preparedness and emergency responses, and it has adopted in 2021 uh, a climate change and security action plan. These are some examples of what NATO uh, can do. Not transformative, but at least uh, helpful. Yes, that's an interesting insight. Like I, I was not aware about the fact that uh, they are going to have a center of excellence in Canada as well. Yes, uh, for the environmental issues. That's it, it's quite uh, quite recent. I think it has opened yeah. in the past few months. 
yeah that that would be great to see uh, much more i think evolution and the engagement of other members as well into this because i think the environmental factor of course it's a very critical issue and every i mean not only the defense every other industrial sector is now you know getting involved and trying to contribute to these issues uh, right. so yeah uh, moving forward uh, what are the key lessons learned from nato's crisis response efforts and how are these lessons uh, shaping future strategies like some of the examples we just discussed was about uh, kosovo so mm-hmm. on the same lens can you uh, extend a little bit of your perspective yes yeah, so i would say it's it's uh, it's rather a mixed bag when it comes to nato's crisis response efforts because yes. there there are there are some success stories i think kosovo is one of them to a certain extent in, in the sense that uh i mean the the situation in kosovo uh or in the balkans the western balkans generally is still very fragile and precarious uh but still uh the nato forces there through the k4 or, or eu eu forces through the in in bosnia through the u4 uh, altia which is uh, uh which has been uh, which is under a framework that uh, where EU uses uh, NATO capabilities. Uh, these are very important. Um, they, they are not the magical solution for the region, but if you if you take them out, then the situation could actually worsen worsen very much in the region. So this is this is an example where NATO's uh, response is important. Then you have all the out of area operations that have been carried out since uh, since Afghanistan 2001, uh, mostly in the in the Arab uh, in the Arab world or in the the Muslim world, which frankly the uh, the, the outcome is not so uh, positive. Afghanistan obviously is, is one example of uh, failure on on the long term because it has not been transformative for. For the country, you have seen we had some long-term NATO engagement in Iraq too, which uh, is not again very uh, doesn't really lead to to major uh, results. You had this uh, Libya campaign in two thousand eleven, uh, and now we can witness the, the catastrophic consequences of uh, this campaign. So overall, uh, a rather uh, yeah mixed picture um and so that raises the question of what is the future of uh, of nato engagement in the crisis uh, response because i think in most regions especially the ones where you could expect a european or american engagement in africa in the middle east some parts of asia also because of these failures uh, it's hard to see how NATO could be a welcome, uh, a welcome player in, in these regions. So crisis management is still one of the three core missions of uh, of NATO, but at times of increasing tensions with the major players such as uh, Russia, China, or Iran. Um, think it's not the, the most uh, uh, promising avenue for the years to the years to come yes definitely i think it's a mixed bag of uh, everything 
uh, because not uh, every, of course, the mission has turned out the way it has to be. Uh, but, you know, taking just the other view, uh, the I think adversaries have always taken advantage of such situation uh, where I believe the NATO troops are deployed in uh, Central African countries like Chad and all. Uh, I have always seen uh, where, you know, there have not been such a negative, I would say, efforts from the NATO side. They have, there have been a significant positive efforts as well. But the adversaries always, you know, try to amplify the lens of the negative side, uh, mm-hmm. which is a tool of disinformation. So what role do disinformation warfare uh, play in uh, this security domain? And how is NATO countering these challenges? Especially in a case where, you know, I would say, Adversaries are, adversaries are, I would say, trying to take advantage of the situations. Yes, this is also one of the topics that is uh, not really easy for uh, for a military institution, a military organization to uh, to tackle. Um, because, of course, as you as you mentioned, it has an impact on the on the ground, especially in theaters where there is a, a conflict. Uh, you mentioned Central African Republic, uh, where France really has encountered massive propaganda, or in the, in the Sahel, um, where the, there is no major, there is no NATO engagement there. But the uh, these are grounds that are contested by Russia, and where Russia really uses at full its uh, uh, its disinformation uh, capacities. Yes. Uh, Closer to us, even in in Europe, I mean, Russia's uh, disinformation campaigns regarding uh, regarding Ukraine uh, also also had some some successes across NATO uh, as NATO members. Um, but NATO again, there is an issue of uh, of mandate and and means to tackle uh, these issues. NATO can only do some institutional uh, communication, so uh, uh, exposing uh, Russian lies, but it it cannot really engage into uh, counter disinformation or counter hybrid uh, operations. This can be carried out only at uh, at national uh, at national level. So and again on this topic, the European Union seems to be more equipped. To uh, to face it has uh, it has created some toolboxes to uh, uh, to fight disinformation. These are more these are really topics that are more for the the, the political uh, sphere than for the for the military to to tackle. Yes. So this is definitely a, a concern and a topic of interest for for NATO. But in terms again of uh, of means. Um, NATO is not really, really well equipped. Yes. And, uh, you know, just to, I would say, take uh, other perspective uh, from negotiation side, I would say, how does NATO engage with non-military tools uh, such as diplomacy and de- uh, development in its uh, security approach? Uh, because I believe diplomacy is always, you know, the first step to reduce the escalation in the conflicts and the tensions between the adversaries and the other nations. So what are your thoughts on this? Yes, I think it's, it's, um, it will echo some of, uh, some of the comments I made, including on the, the previous question, uh, is 
NATO is both a political and a military uh, organization, but it's first and foremost a uh, military organization. Um, yes. And so for diplomatic engagement, there are there are other other venues like you know the EU, for instance, has uh, uh, some sort of foreign affairs uh, minister through its uh, uh, through its uh, high representative uh, Joseph Borrell, but NATO doesn't engage in in, uh, in diplomacy of that kind, trying to solve conflict through uh, uh, through diplomacy. It has, of course, the uh, the, the North Atlantic Council, where uh, senior senior diplomats uh, tackle all range of issues pertaining to uh, to transatlantic security and and defense, um, and and they they come up with uh, with decisions on how to, for for example, address the uh, the the war in Ukraine. Um, for instance, yes. in Ukraine, they, there is you were mentioning development. There is this comprehensive assistance package, which is which is yes. non-military tools that have been decided by uh, by NATO by NATO members. But again, we have to be clear that NATO is neither the European Union, neither the United Nations. Yes. Uh, this is not a, a crisis resolution venue. Definitely. Yeah, I think we are uh, at the end of the podcast now. And, uh, you know, this final question is uh, completely not related to uh, the topic at all, uh, because there are a lot of student researchers uh, and even, you know, the postdoc uh, experts who listen to this podcast. So everyone, I, I would say people from various backgrounds actually try to, you know, make a career in defense and security. So and I believe every expert that comes on this podcast has some anecdotes uh, to provide to these uh, stakeholders, students, and the researchers. Uh, so yeah, from that perspective, I have drafted this question. Uh, what message you would like to share with the students, researchers, and other stakeholders who are participating and engaging in defense and security research studies? Yes, well, it's a good, uh, it's a good question, actually. If I can share my personal experience, I uh, I've always been interested in security yes. uh, and defense issues, but I, of course, you you don't uh, you're never born as a specialist, so you have to build your your expertise. And when I joined uh, the French Foreign Affairs Ministry, I had to attend uh, some meetings among senior uh, senior military officials and. They were trading acronyms among each other, and really, I was totally lost in translation. I've, I've learned several languages, but it really seemed like a total foreign language for uh, for me. And this, this is a bit both impressive and and depressing when you when you're when you're a yeah. beginner that you, you don't understand a word of, of what is being said. So first, <laughs> let's not be impressed by by that because there's a lot of uh, yes uh, of rules and uh, jargon, uh, as we say. In, 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 in French, and so, so yeah, you have to pass that uh, that phase, and also I think having different perspectives uh, from be it from different part of the world or uh, different themes of interest that are not that are indirectly related to security and defense are always important to to enrich the the debate because 
sometimes you can feel when you approach people in, in NATO or in the, the ministries of defense that even even think tanks in uh, uh, all around the world, there are some eco chambers or bubbles where people who know each other uh, come with the same language, the same the same terms, and it's really important to have some some fresh ideas coming from people with different uh, backgrounds. I think this is one of the of the key uh, key avenues for improvement for uh, for militaries is to better integrate different uh, perspectives both from different geographies, from different uh, backgrounds. Uh, this, this only enriches the, the debate. So main, the main message is don't feel shame, ashamed of yes. your background if you're not exactly on the, the tracks that are expected from you. And the country be always proud of, uh, of the different uh, perspectives that you can bring. Yes, definitely. I think uh, this is really a good uh, insight, I would say, uh, for the students that you provided. I hope uh, the audience takes a lot of key points uh, for the research as well and for the general knowledge too from this episode. And I, I think uh, uh, there are several questions that also popped up uh, during the conversation, especially about the hybrid threats as well. Uh, mm -hmm. because I, I have personally worked on that topic uh, contributing yes. to the NATO think tank so uh, and I would personally love to see NATO investing more and more uh, towards uh, that segment of how to counter hybrid threats because I believe uh, with adversaries like uh, adversary nations like you know who are a bit more aggressive in the international stage like North Korea uh, are going to f use a full-scale potential uh, to unleash the hybrid threats. And it is very much important that when, uh, because hybrid threats are made to actually destabilize multiple nations at the same time. It's it's not mm -hmm. at targeted at one single nation. So I hope uh, there is more and more development from the NATO side uh, in that aspect. And we can definitely uh, discuss this in future episodes because I would love to have you uh, on the future episodes as well as we see more and more developments uh, in this segment. That would be my pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much, Matthew, again uh, for your time. Thank you, Ankar, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.